Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Greetings from the New York Mets Hall of Fame, Jeff. It appears to have gotten a little more crowded in here. On today's show, we talk about the four newest inductees to the Mets Hall of Fame. Last week, the Mets announced that Howard Johnson, Al Leiter, Gary Cohn, and Howie Rose would be inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame this season. They also announced that Jay Horowitz would receive a Special Achievement Award. This is a big deal. Congratulations to all five. Why is this important, Greg? Because we're Mets fans, that's why. Because we didn't just get here. Because sports fandom is funny. You you theoretically go to the game, you watch the game, you care about who wins and who loses, but you don't show up the next day with your brain scrubbed of everything that happened before, nor did you show up that way today. And I think that's where history comes into play for a sports fan in the day-to-day of being a sports fan let alone the days and nights where there is no game going on and your mind wanders and you think of the days that made you happy and the nights that had you anxious and the people who made it possible in all sorts of ways. And ultimately, you come back to the best that your team had to offer through the years. And when we have a team hall of fame, as the Mets have had since 1981, not always well-tended, but certainly well-meaning, it makes you proud. It makes you proud to be a Mets fan. It makes you proud to be a fan of any team you root for when they acknowledge their history. So that's why I think we get excited when the Mets invite alumni back and have an event like they did last year in Old Timers Day, when they retire a number like they did for number 17, Keith Hernandez, like they did for number 24, Willie Mays, and when they have a Hall of Fame announcement and say, we are going to bring back X number of people who were important to the organization and honor them one of the best ways we can by saying, you are, to use a phrase that is thrown around in Cooperstown, immortal, or at least very, very important in the scheme of things to us. We acknowledge your achievements. We acknowledge the impact you had. We acknowledge that you carry a certain transcendence where the New York Mets are concerned. And where this particular class is concerned, I don't think it could be any more true. And this is part of the continued emphasis on Mets history that's occurred during the Steve Cohn era. Steve was cited by all five individuals during the media availability that occurred last week after the announcement was made. Steve Cohn continues to emphasize Mets history, and we love that. Let us all acknowledge Steve Cohn where that's concerned. I honestly don't know what the process was here exactly for a few of these announcements because three of the five people who are being honored are usually the people who help decide who is being honored. And knowing what I know about those three people, I don't see any of them standing up and saying, you know who we ought to put in? Me. So I'm going to guess that Steve Cohn was a little proactive and figured out his own Steve Cohn bypass, shall we say, to get done what I think we've agreed we are on record, actually, as uh, calling for the induction of the two broadcasters. And we are for anything that puts uh, the former public relations director and current alumni affairs director in a spotlight. So if this is Steve Cohn's doing specifically 
fantastic. And I think more generally, this is Steve Cohn's doing this sort of emphasis. The Mets have, as I've said, done this periodically. The last time was 2020 when they announced a Hall of Fame class and the fates were unkind to them with COVID and it took another year to put those guys in. Edgardo Alfonso, Ron Darling, and John Matlack, along with Al Jackson, who got the Achievement Award that year. But it was a great night when they were inducted. It's always a great night or day when they induct a Mets Hall of Famer. And I know, like you, I look forward to the induction of these guys on June 3rd. Let's talk about each of the honorees and start with Al Leiter. If you think about great pitchers in Mets history, sometimes I think Al Leiter gets lost. Look at what his war was, wins above replacement, during his Met years. 4.8, 3.3, 4.8, 3.8, etc. Outstanding numbers. And he was responsible for one of the greatest pitching performances in Mets history. 1999, October 4. Greg, there was only one wild card team that year. Could you imagine? And the Mets and the Reds were tied. He pitched a complete game in Cincinnati. The Mets won 5 nothing. He threw 135 pitches, a two-hitter, putting the Mets in the playoffs in 1999. Al Leiter, Mets Hall of Famer. If all Al Leiter did was pitch us into the postseason, die new, as they say. But Al Leiter had so many great starts, so many great seasons. And if he gets lost a little bit, two theories. One He was a left-hander, and that's not to insult whatever percentage of the audience here is left-handed. I think the signature form of the New York Met pitcher in our minds is a right-hander because it's been Tom Seaver and it's been Dwight Gooden. And yes, until very recently, it's been Jacob deGrom, which is not to say there haven't been some great left-handers. Two of them, from a starting perspective, are in the Mets Hall of Fame, Jerry Kuzman and John Matlack, at least two of them that I come to mind. Uh, Relief pitchers, uh, John Franco and Tug McGraw. But no left-handed starter has ever been the undisputed ace of a Mets staff in that way that Seaver and Gooden and DeGrom were for very long. I think you could say Johan Santana was, but Johan Santana's presence on the Mets was a little in and out because of injuries and the fact that the team wasn't that great. As great as Kuzman was, he was always 1A to Seaver's 1. Same for Matlack, 1B to uh, Seaver and Kuzman. So maybe that has a little something to do with the perspective. I think more to the point, Al Leiter was the best pitcher the Mets had turn in and turn out every five or so days at a time when pitching really didn't define the Mets the way it did in the days of Seaver and the way it did in the days of Gooden and maybe even in the days of DeGrom. Those were the days of Piazza and Alfonso and Ventura and Olerud and later Zeal. The Mets hit a lot, but they needed the pitching to get it done. And I think you could get a little overwhelmed by the fact that the Mets had a great offense in those days to notice that they also had a terrific starting pitcher who you could count on every five days like Leiter. And finally, when the Mets changed general managers and they changed managers after the 2004 season, that was a signal that one era was ending and they hoped a new era would begin. But I think the signal change that said, okay, we're done with the past, was when they let Al Leiter go, and he would go on to sign with the Florida Marlins from whence he came, and they signed Pedro Martinez, which is a whole other wonderful story in Mets history, but it also kind of 
put the lighter days behind us in a definitive way that I think we just weren't thinking about him all that much in the years to follow. And he went off and spent what one more year pitching and retired. And then he went to work for the Yes Network, which is something most of us decent folks don't watch during the baseball season. And I think there was just that, that sense of mild estrangement almost at his media availability that you mentioned. Uh, he was asked about when he was approached to be part of the original SNY booth, which, oh yeah, that's right, that did happen. And he just couldn't quite get on the same page with, with what was being planned at the time. So any chance he was going to come back to the meta organization in that capacity sort of floated away. And he didn't really come back with for any kind of Met presence beyond a day here or a day there till he was named, I think, uh, what was the phrase, special advisor, sort of like Lyndon Johnson had. He was an advisor to Brody Van Wagenen for a year or two, and, and that sort of faded away. But I, I specifically remember Leiter, we're not even talking about his career, I'm talking about his presence, and I think his presence, his personality is so much of who he is to us. The one year that the Mets had an official fan fest, one of their big guests, alumni guests, was Al Leiter. And Al Leiter, in the best way possible, kind of overwhelmed the proceedings when it was his turn and other 2000 Mets turn to sit on stage and tell stories and answer questions. He was exactly the Al Leiter I remembered. I think that all of us remember, just very garrulous, very articulate, very emotional, very giving. He loved being a Met in ways that few Mets seem to publicly. He knew it in advance that's how he was going to be because he was a Mets fan the whole time, certainly as a kid. And we've heard him tell those stories about watching Seaver and Kuzman going to games at Shea from Tom's River, New Jersey with his father, big National League fan. When he finally gets here after a decade of pitching for the Yankees and the Blue Jays and the Marlins, it's the most comfortable pair of shoes you can imagine. And he made the most of all the steps he would take. And he nearly pitched the Mets into the playoffs in 1998. And he did pitch the Mets into the playoffs in 1999. And he did a lot to get the Mets into the National League Championship Series once they played Arizona. He had a hell of a start at Shea Stadium in Game 4. Again, what would become sort of the signature of his postseason starts for the Mets. Inevitably, something would go a little bit awry with the bullpen. But he put up a great Saturday afternoon in what became known as the Todd Pratt game. We could easily be talking about it being the Al Leiter game. And he'd come back in 2000 and do it again and be even better for the whole season and have those incredible starts in the postseason. Again, there was always a reason that he didn't get the win, but he put them in a position to win. And he, he kept at it. He was your opening day starter when there wasn't somebody more glamorous around. It always felt like the Mets were looking for a little more. I was happy with Al Leiter in that position. I think Al Leiter was happy with us. And it was nice hearing him when he was asked about it, talking about how, oh, he wishes he could have stayed a Met, retired a Met, wishes he could have gotten to 100 wins. I think it was 95. He would have had the fourth most in Mets history behind Seaver and Gooden and Kuzman. And the fact that these things meant something to him, the fact that he walks in knowing that, as opposed to somebody tapping him on the shoulder and saying, hey, did you have any idea you were this good? He knew how good he was. He knew how important he was to the overall Met success of his era. And I think this selection says something about that era. We're now up to four players in the Mets Hall of Fame who were from those 1999 and 2000 era Mets. Piazza and Alfonso and Franco, who was one of those guys who transcends eras. 
And it's good to see Wider get his due. Yeah, I think he's gotten a little lost. I think he's been found, and I think it's a victory for all of us. If you ask any Mets fan to name a favorite Met from the late 80s, early 90s, they're sure to include Howard Johnson. Instead of using my words, I'm going to read Greg's words, which is a little weird, given that Greg's sitting right here and he's going to speak in a moment. But this is what Greg wrote about Howard Johnson last week at Faith and Fear in Flushing. Three Mets have homered 30 times and stolen 30 bases in one season. Only Hojo did it thrice. And only Hojo did it shifting between third and short when asked. And only Hojo did it trotting out to what amounted to a new position in right when asked. And only Hojo, at the peak of his powers, said sure when he was assigned center after so many seasons playing anywhere but. And only Hojo led the league in homers and RBIs along the way to piling up all those bags. And if you wanted an incredibly clutch hit on a night practically aching for victorious resolution, Hojo was memorably your man again and again. He was never the star attraction among the bigger name Mets from 1985 to 1993. He barely played like it. He sure did. Uh, Thanks for reading that. Yeah, Howard Johnson, I think, is one of the icons of that period, uh, 85 to 93. And he did it the old-fashioned way, as John Houseman might have said in commercials long ago. He earned it because he, he came here with no particular portfolio. He was a Detroit Tiger who was deemed by the defending world champions to be fairly superfluous to their opportunity to repeat. And by the way, they traded Howard Johnson. The Detroit Tigers have not won a World Series since. Coincidence or not, you decide. Howard Johnson came here as a piece. He was not a superstar when he arrived. He was not even the full-time third baseman when he arrived. And he wouldn't always be the full-time anything forever during his tenure. But he made himself into the kind of player who you don't have a team hall of fame without. And he started doing it in 1985. I think in a way he had an advantage because he was having a pretty good year. And the guy he was sharing third base with, Ray Knight, was having a miserable year. It became Howard Johnson's position as 1985 went on. And 1985 was a glorious season, except for the victorious resolution. And Howard Johnson was a huge part of that down the stretch. Uh, One night, or actually it was an afternoon that sticks with me, the Mets are barely hanging on. We all know about that series in St. Louis at the end of the year. Well, there was a series in Pittsburgh right before then that the Mets could not afford to lose. And he gets hits a big home run late in that game, sends it to extra innings. He would do that a lot. I don't think it is necessarily remembered how often Howard Johnson hit huge home runs, got huge singles and doubles in late innings. It was often on the road, so they don't show up in your lists of walk-off wins. But to me, they're walk-up wins. The Mets walked up and took them. And Howard Johnson, late in a game, was a guy you wanted to have up there. Again, I think we, we've talked about it before, 1986. He's a 1986 Met all the way. He's there from beginning to end. He's not one of the most important players when you take the big, the big team picture in a way because we think of others as being the guy in 86. We think of Ray Knight as being the guy, the guy he had shared third base with, which was now mostly Ray Knight's ballywick. But Howard Johnson got huge hits that year. Again, you, you don't have that 
four game sweep in St. Louis that basically signals the end, not the beginning of the end, but the end of the Cardinals in that April. Unless Howard Johnson hits that big home run off Todd Worrell in April. The most amazing game of that year, the 14-inning game in Cincinnati in which every crazy thing happens. I won't even go over the other crazy things. I'll just say that Howard Johnson won it with a three-run homer in the 14th inning. And Howard Johnson had a lot of hits like that. And when he was trusted because the Mets didn't want to pay Ray Knight a, a pittance more, and he left, it's like, okay, Hojo. You're the third baseman now. He took it and he ran with it. He ran with it and stole bases. He ran to the plate and hit home runs. And he became this 30-30 guy we talk about now. I don't know that there is baseball betting on what will be written on a team Hall of Fame plaque, but I would bet that within the first two sentences, it will mention the fact that he was 30-33 times. And that is what we think about because it is so unusual to consider. But again, just the day in, day out, sort of like with Leiter, just kind of transcended the numbers. And this was a guy who worked really hard to get better and got better. And as the years went by, and as the bigger names on the team, especially the everyday players, were leaving, Hojo turned himself into a superstar for a few years. He turned himself into the flagship player of the everyday lineup. And yeah, he would play wherever they asked him to play which is no small thing. I had the opportunity to talk to him at the Queens Baseball Convention. He was one of the special guests. And I asked somebody if they thought they could get me a few minutes with Hojo. And by the way, you don't ask for a few minutes with Johnson or Howard. You ask for a few minutes with Hojo, because I I don't know if anybody in his family calls him anything, but Hojo, maybe dad. But anyway, um, I was fortunate enough to get a few minutes with him for some questions I had for series of articles uh, I've been working on. And not not only was he very cordial and been very giving of his time, but I, I could see how much it meant to him to be a complete player that in retrospect, certainly he didn't mind being asked to play all these different positions and take on these different roles. It was just the way he played baseball. It was the way he helped his team, the way he helped his team when they were doing great in 86 and 88. And it was the way he helped his team when they weren't doing so great. And they wouldn't have been doing anything at all if it weren't for Howard Johnson. So it it makes me very happy to see him get honored this way, not only because he deserves it, because he put the numbers up, but because it, it shows sort of a little wider angle on what a franchise is, what a team is that as much as he was a part of the 86 Mets, and I'm not trying to take it away from him by any means. He was the 87 Mets and the 89 Mets and the 91 Mets. And when we're fans, we care about every year that we are in. And he made those years better. And he made every year, you know, something to cheer for. Clear through to not a great year, 1993. His last year as a Met, I remember him coming back uh, in 97. Tried that one last time to make a team after he'd been out of the game for about a year. And it, it did my heart some good to see him almost basically get to the end of spring training, almost make the team. They brought him back throughout the first pitch, uh, the first home game that year, which was a doubleheader. And he kept coming back. You know, they, they brought him back to coach. It would have been nice if he could have just stuck around. You know, that's one of the things that, that almost bothers me when you see a franchise icon get a job in the organization, knowing that at some point they might be let go because somebody decides, well, we don't know if he's the right fit for, for what he's doing. I would like to believe that being in the Mets Hall of Fame makes you Teflon in some way. I, I know it doesn't because I've seen 
Met Hall of Famers be dismissed from their positions. But I hope that forevermore, not only in his heart, but just for everybody concerned, Howard Johnson's a part of the Mets family, just like all these guys who are in the Mets Hall of Fame should be part of the Mets family. If anybody can be said to have earned his place in the Mets Hall of Fame, I think it's Hojo. Can you imagine putting on SNY or MLB.com or WPIX and not hearing Gary Cohn's voice introduce the game? You wouldn't want to watch. You love the Mets, but Gary welcomes you to Mets baseball. He's reading promos, but you're still happy to hear Gary. Gary is welcoming. He's warm. He's smart. I dare say he's one of us, not for those reasons necessarily, but because he loves the Mets and he knows the Mets. And look at the way he interacts with Keith and Ronnie. It's different. He's the ringmaster. He brings out Keith's cantankerous side. He brings out Keith at his best. With Ronnie, he brings out his cerebral nature. He brings out Ronnie at his best. Gary is so important to our love of the Mets. And I'm so happy that he's won this honor. I join you in your happiness. And I can't imagine there are too many viewers or listeners who don't feel the same way. You nailed it. He loves the Mets. He loves the Mets more than he lets on, I think. And he he lets on, okay. (laughs) But we are so used to professional announcing as Mets fans from 1962 forward that there was never any of this we us hour. I think it's great that you and I talk we us hour if we're talking about the Mets. And I'm perhaps in Gary Cohn's uh, downtime, he, he says, I can't believe we didn't win that game. But he's never going to say that on the air. But it comes through anyway. It comes through intelligently. It comes through passionately. It comes through like somebody who's been watching this team almost the lifetime of the entire team and has gone to bed thinking about what's the deal with this team. He's one of us, and he knows his job in any given medium. He knew his job on the radio. He is as great a radio voice as I've ever heard, and I'm somebody who listened to Bob Murphy for a long time. He could just elevate the moment of a big game like few others could. Bob Murphy could, and Gary Cohn could. I guess you could say Gary uh, studied well under Murph. But you know what? It never felt like he was his junior partner almost from the beginning. And perhaps a lot of that is Bob Murphy being as giving and generous as I'd like to think he was. I never felt like he was treating Gary Cohn as some kid in the booth, even though it's, it's hard to believe that when Gary Cohn came to the booth, I think he was just a little over 30 at that point. Feels like he's been here forever. And he has become, you know, the elder statesman in a way of, uh, of Mets baseball. But You know, I I think back to a night in 1990. So it's his second year in the booth. The Mets are playing a huge series against Pittsburgh. And Daryl Strawberry hits a huge home run in September that's going to win the game for the Mets, going to keep the Mets alive for a few more weeks. And as Gary Cohn is calling it, yeah, his his voice raises, but he's, he's not yelling like an idiot. It's clear he's excited and it's clear he understands what it means to his audience. And I think Gary Cohn has always kept his audience in mind, which is why we feel so much simpatico with him, to use a phrase I heard somebody use about Gary Cohn years ago. It's not so much that you feel you know him, although I think, as as he talked about when they did the media availability, he talked about kind of letting his personality out a little more as the years have gone by. 
We, we just can tell how important the Mets are to him because they are important to him. When, when they started sticking that camera in the booth to show his reaction to big plays, to big calls, and somebody sponsors that, and it's just amazing to watch him. It's like a controlled burn. He'll be calling the big home run. And if you're just watching on TV and you're watching the home run, you're watching the play around the bases, you hear a great appropriate call maybe not as detailed as you would on radio because he knows you're watching it on television but when you see that view from the camera that they stick in the booth he's standing up and he throws the pin and he's pumping his fist because this means something to him he's not a dispassionate reporter years ago and i know we have one one more hall of famer to get to to whom this anecdote plays into so i i will hold off on talking about him too much but years ago when when it was gary Cohn and howie rose in the radio booth for a couple of years and i couldn't believe our good fortune to have the two of them together and i i had written something about no offense to whoever was doing tv that night i'll turn down the television and listen on the radio with the sound i mean that's the sort of thing you do when the game's on espn or it's on fox i was doing this for whoever was not gary Cohn and howie rose and one of those announcers actually this shocked me because faith and fear was a new thing at the time one of those announcers got in touch with me who i was turning down and said i'm doing the best i can why would you say that and i said no offense, pal, but Gary Cohn and Howie Rose, but we're talking about Gary here. I think it was a Gary Cohn call I was talking about specifically. I said, Gary Cohn gets everything about being a Met and a Mets fan and Met baseball. And I said as nicely as I could, and you don't. <laughs> I mean, I didn't quite put it that way, but you know, again, it was a respectful exchange. We saw each other were coming from, and, and this guy was did not do that many Met games. So he understood where a full-time fan is coming from. And he said, oh, I wish they would give me more time on the air. I can only do so many games, my schedule, whatever it was. And that's professional announcer, uh, live and be well. But man, we lucked out. We lucked out with Gary Cohn. And then we'll talk about it with Howie Rose, I'm sure. We'll never luck out this way again, because mind you, there's three announcers in the Mets Hall of Fame already. Only three, the same three that have been there since 1984, because they were the same three who were there from 1962 forward until through 1978 and the other two were there well into the 21st century. Bob Murphy, Ralph Kiner, Lindsey Nelson. And the fact that Gary Cohen and the fact that Howie Rose, in essence, studied under those guys. And by studied, I mean, they listened like crazy. They listened to those guys and they listened to Marv Albert, another great New York announcer. The next generation of announcers, we can only hope, will take their cue from the guys who took their cue from Bob and Ralph and Lindsay and Marv and carry on that tradition. And also one more thing about Gary. You talked about him welcoming us on television. He's not a television announcer by trade. He's a radio announcer. And yet he is a TV star as far as we're concerned. He is a maestro. He conducts when you when you talk about what he does with Keith and what he does with Ron again, two perfectly capable adults who don't need a, a whole lot of coaxing. But he knows what their strengths are. And he knows about engaging them in conversation. He knows that we're listening. He knows that the Mets fan cares what those guys have to say about certain things. He knows that he also has to be a reporter sometimes and sometimes a critical commentator. And when I, I talked a moment ago about uh, Teflon being conferred with Mets Hall of Fame induction, I've often thought the only thing that could ever get me to, to quit on the Mets, other than just periodic disgust, 
say that's it, I'm not watching again until tomorrow night, is if they ever did anything to say, hey, Gary Cohn, you got to tone it down, or Howie Rose, don't criticize uh, the manager or whatever. And as long as they never do that, I'm good. Because as far as I'm concerned, Gary's heart is always in the right place and his mouth is in the right place, (laughs) more importantly, I suppose. And uh, the other guy he's going in with, uh, the same could be said. So just delighted that this is happening. As happy as I am about Al Leiter, as happy as I am about Howard Johnson, doesn't begin to describe how happy I am about Gary Cohn going to the Mets Hall of Fame. At the end of February, we'll hear our first Mets spring training game on the radio. And then we'll hear Howie Rose and we'll smile. Howie will say something about how these games are nonsense, how the fans are paying to watch practice. Why are we sitting here? And we'll laugh because we love Howie. We love Howie Rose. The games that he misses make us miss Howie Rose. And this is so meaningful to me to hear that he is going to be inducted. You get to the end of the game, his descriptions, his passion, and that voice are perfect. And as the game goes on, though, we'll have so many different references. And we expect those references to the odd couple, to Seinfeld, words in Yiddish. So to put it in ways that Howie will understand for the odd couple, the fact that he wasn't in the Hall of Fame is ridiculous. The fact that he wasn't there was a Shanda. And for Howie, yes, Hall of Fame for you. Yeah, Aristophanes was ridiculous. And uh, it was ridiculous Howie not being in the Hall of Fame. Howie shares a first name with Howard Johnson uh, on the birth certificates, I suppose. I feel there is a little bit of that he earned his way in because Howie Rose was, I don't want to say he was a born Mets Hall of Famer, but from the moment we heard him host a pregame show, or maybe the first time we heard him was hosting the postgame show in spring training of 1987, we knew that this was somebody special when it came to understanding the Mets and communicating the Mets. And he isn't a full-time what we would think of as a Mets broadcaster for another nine years, except he redefined what that role in the pregame and the postgame was with Mets Extra. As much as I had listening to Bob Murphy and Gary Thorne in the mid-80s. And this was a period where I got cable for the first time, but sometimes I would just be content to sit in a room that did not have a television and listen to Bob Murphy and Gary Thorne because you, you weren't missing anything if you didn't see TV except for the pictures because they were great. But it wasn't like I would want to stay tuned after the game for more than 10 minutes because after 10 minutes of maybe playing a highlight or two or just giving the scores, Maybe there'd be a quick interview uh, with a star of the game. I don't even remember anymore. You're back to WHN and country music, which is fine, but you didn't have any expectations. What Howie Rose did in the months before there was something called all sports talk radio all the time was build our expectations as for what being told about the Mets and being engaged about the Mets could be. And as far as I'm concerned, he invented that. There, There was a Mets extra during the playoffs the year before hosted by somebody named... Dave Cohn, not the pitcher David Cohn, but Coney Island Dave Cohn. He uh, co-hosted the show with Rusty Staub, uh, who had nothing else to do because they weren't doing local broadcasts of the uh, postseason. And it was it was fun, but it wasn't anything spectacular. And then Howie Rose shows up shortly before opening day in 1987, says, this is a new thing we're going to try here on WHN. 
75 minutes before and 75 minutes after every game. That's how much interest there was in the Mets coming out of 1986. And there was only one broadcaster who could have hosted a show like that. We just met him. I think I was kind of familiar with his voice from, you know, he worked on WCBS and gave updates maybe. But this was really our introduction to Howie Rose. And once we knew Howie Rose, we knew him forever. And it was clear, much like with Gary Cohn, a different role at this point, but it was clear that he cared about the Mets the way we cared about the Mets, loved the Mets the way we love the Mets, but was sober-minded about the Mets in a way necessarily uh, that we necessarily weren't because all we had to be was fans. He danced along that divide very well. And as he often talks about when he's asked about those days, you know, he brought Davey Johnson into our lives in a totally different way. We had just seen Davey Johnson you know, sitting in the dugout popping my lanta or whatever would, would calm his stomach from whatever, whoever Jesse Orozco might put on base. He brought Davey Johnson to us every day asked him intelligent questions, got Davey Johnson to open up. Maybe Davey Johnson didn't want to do that, but he, he respected what Howie Rose had to ask. And how he's asking it, not because he's curious, but because we're curious. And he understood the relationship. And this is where growing up a Mets fan comes into it, I think. And, and why I said a few minutes ago, we're never going to be this lucky again. Because these guys, Howie and Gary, but we're talking about Howie, absorbed everything about growing up as Mets fans and wanting to know what a Mets fan wants to know and valuing what a Mets fan values and eschewing what a Mets fan eschews. And he worked real hard at it. And he had to put up with some combination of radio station management as WHN became WFAN, owned by whoever, and put up with Mets management. He didn't always want to hear it because Howie did not pull punches. He was always smart about it, always adult about it, but he did not give you the company line. And I think there was a point there in the early 90s where they were kind of trying to eat him to the side. And you may remember a name, Todd Callis, kind of became the pregame baseball extra where they tried to have Howie talk about things beside the Mets. I mean, he already had a talk show. He already had hockey. Howie never quite went away. They couldn't make him go away because he was meant to do this. And ultimately, somebody said, you know what? Uh, we're better off with Howie Rose being in the Howie Rose business for the rest of our lives. So he becomes the TV guy. I hadn't seen him do a whole lot of TV. He had done some filling in on radio. He had done some broadcasts alongside Bob Murphy or Eddie Coleman or whoever was up there, or Gary Cohn, I suppose. Uh, but he became the main flagship TV guy on cable. Uh, 1996, it was Howie Rose and Fran Healy and Ralph Kiner. It was never completely, okay, this is the TV guy the way Gary is because the Mets had different rights holders and the Mets had different combinations, but Howie, again, persevered and tried out some of his catchphrases, some of which stuck, put it in the books, some of which didn't. Uh, we got a brand new shiny one. Uh, that's, that's a goner. You don't hear those anymore. I think uh, he just decided, you know what, it was fun, but I don't have to force it. And he worked well with everybody. He worked well with Fran Healy, who I don't think is the most revered name in Mets broadcasting, but that was a pretty good combination. I wasn't turning down the sound on the TV to listen to the radio because I liked listening to Howie Rose on TV. And you could tell what it meant to him to work alongside Ralph Kiner. And you could tell when he filled in uh, what it meant to him to work alongside Bob Murphy. And you could tell what a great day it was for Mets fans in 2004 and really through 2005, when you had Howie Rose and Gary Cohn as your co-voices of the Mets, and life pretty much didn't get any better than that as a Mets fan. And SNY comes along, and they tried to hire Al Leiter, 
Well, they, I, th- I think the guy they had on their radar was, was Dave O'Brien, who you know was with ESPN for a lot of years, maybe, maybe still is. I think he does the Red Sox games. He had done the, uh, the WPIX games on weekends with Tom Seaver and leave it to, you know, every story about executives at studios or record labels or television networks, it's always, they have the wrong idea. Well, their idea was Dave O'Brien, um, no offense to Dave O'Brien. We got Gary Cohn, let's put it that way. We, we did okay on their second choice or however it worked. So yes, Gary Cohn goes to television and, and forms this great new alliance with Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling. And Howie Rose is in radio where he was all along from 1987 as host of Mets Extra and where he was hosting, you know, five-hour shows some nights in winter. And now he is the, the voice of the Mets on radio with one partner after another. At least when Howie's talking, it doesn't take any getting used to because, again, this was what he was born to do. When I say a born Mets Hall of Famer, this was the job he was meant for, to, to tell us about tonight's Mets game, to tell us where this Mets game fits into the greater context of a Mets season and Mets history, just because that's how a Mets fan thinks. You asked at the very beginning, why is it important to honor the history, to have a Hall of Fame, that sort of thing? Because we don't just come into this off the street and aren't ever going to come back. And, and Howie's the perfect voice for that. And yeah, I think Howie, over the years, has gotten very comfortable being that guy and will occasionally tell you what he thinks about life and occasionally go a little bit off message, if you will. And that's why we love him, because he is absolutely a human being in that role. And to this day, again, like we said with Gary Cohn, does not say we, does not say us, does not say our, but you can hear it in the overtones. You can feel it in the passion that comes out that you've had a Mets Hall of Fame this long with only three announcers, as if to say we knew all we needed to know about Met announcing and its importance to us in 1984 when the original three were inducted was to not be true to what has been going on since the late 1980s when we've had Gary Cohn and we've had Howie Rose It is delightful that they're both in the Hall of Fame. It is delightful that they go in together, that even if they were only technically partners for two years, you know, they have been the guys, as far as I'm concerned, together for as long as they've been on the scene, as long as certainly since they officially crossed paths. You know, what is the the phrase Gary uses? Howie is my brother from another mother. I think that's perfect. And we all feel like cousins. You know, I think of, of Bob Murphy, I think of Ralph Kiner, I think of Lindsey Nelson's my baseball uncles. I'd, I'd, I'd see them on the weekends and, and they would uh, clue me into the things I wasn't learning at home, maybe. These are our cousins. We're, we're part of the same mishpucha, if you will. And Howie has, has spread that, that family gospel for all the years he's been doing this. And, you know, you, you felt it when he was there with Josh Lewin. You felt it when he was there with Wayne Randazzo. And I, I think you'll feel it just as much with whoever his next partner is. And boy, do I look forward to the day Howie Rose, not anybody else. I'm sure it'll be great on its own. But the day that Howie Rose can say, ladies and gentlemen, the New York Mets are world champions will be the day earned by a lifetime of Mets fandom and Mets broadcasting and Mets heart. And that's who Howie Rose is. That's what we're going to be seeing when we see his plaque in the Mets Hall of Fame. The Mets also announced that Jay Horowitz will receive a special achievement award. We talked about Jay just this past December when Greg introduced Jay at the Queens Baseball Convention when Jay was given an award. 
In early March 2020, I went to spring training in Port St. Lucie. This was about two weeks before the world changed. And the thought that I was standing online next to other people at that time seems very strange to me. But I did. I waited online at Clover Park to take a picture with Glendon Rush and Mike Hampton. And I'll put that picture on our Twitter feed. Sitting in the corner was Jay Horowitz having a nosh. And Jay was not looking at anybody. He was off again. He was off to the side. And people look at going, isn't that Jay? Isn't that Jay? Yes, it was Jay. Jay has always been there as part of the Mets, and he's well-deserving of this Special Achievement Award. I like that that's how you found him, because I don't think Jay is the least bit impressed with himself. Uh, he may be the only one who's not impressed with Jay Harwitz. Jay Harwitz, like you said, always, forever. We'll use 1980 as the baseline for always and forever. That's when he became the Mets Public Relations Director. Uh, we, we became aware of him throughout the 1980s as he's sort of that guy standing off to the side a trade had been made or god forbid somebody had been uh, arrested or admitted uh, to, to rehab uh, you know that that was part of jay's job too being the the conduit from the front office or the clubhouse to the media ultimately to the fans and you know funny thing happened on the way to the hall of fame that jay harwitz has outlasted everybody <laughs> or connected to the Mets uh, in 1980, there there might be a few people around uh, the organization who have, who have seniority, but certainly nobody uh, with his kind of profile, which again, I think has been sort of accidental just from doing his job, but also because you can't help but like Jay Harwood's from a distance, which is how most of us know him. I've had the chance to, to meet him a few times and, and exchange a few words and he's a very nice person. And everybody who knows him better than that says he's more than just a nice person. He, he is a, a mensch to the nth degree. Just the, the fact that this particular award was greeted with as much universal acclaim as any of the Hall of Fame plaques, I think tells you something. All the work that he has done to bring the alumni back, to have Omet alumni. The Mets had former players. They didn't have alumni till a few years ago. Jay, by what looks to you and me like just sitting in a corner while a couple of players sign autographs, is making those sorts of connections happen, bringing the players back into the family, bringing the fans the opportunity to reconnect with those players, making the history matter in more than a, oh, look, let, let's look this up on baseball reference type of way. Mike Hampton and Glendon Rush, I'll just use, use them as examples since you brought them up. They're not in Port St. Lucie's. Greeting fans, if not for Jay Harwich deciding, people will enjoy this and those guys will enjoy it. And it's important because the Mets are more than just today's score and tomorrow's probable pitchers. And as, as far as giving him an achievement award, uh, that is what the Mets seem to do for people who deserve the honor of the Hall of Fame, but it's somewhere along the way was decided, well, that's for players and that's for managers and general managers and maybe broadcasters. The people who have preceded Jay with the Hall of Fame Achievement Award, Bob Mant, who ran the, the ticketing operations and a whole lot of other things over the years from 1962 into early in the past decade. Pete Flynn, uh, head groundskeeper all those years at Shea Stadium and, and when City Field began. Harry Miner, one of the top scouts the Mets ever had. And Al Jackson, who, yes, was a pitcher for the Mets in six separate seasons, 
but was honored more for being the pitching guru and instructor for decades within the Met minor leagues and a little bit of bullpen coaching uh, under Bobby Valentine. So that's what this achievement award says that, okay, like they, they may not be out front and they may not be the people you tune in to watch or to hear, but they are important as well. I would defer to Howard Johnson at, at that uh, aforementioned media availability, who I think it was him, maybe it was Outlier, but I think it was Hojo who said, why don't they just put a statue of, Howard, of, uh, of Jay Harwitz in the Met Museum because he's that big and that important to the organization. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't think the place would burn down if you put a plaque up alongside the other guys, but however they do it, and however Steve Cohn decided this needed to get done, and whoever may have had Steve Cohn's ear on the matter, to uh, repeat myself, well-deserved. Uh, Jay Harwitz is such an embodiment of everything we love about the Mets, and today it feels like everything that's good about the Mets. If AI could create some sort of portrait of if you entered New York Mets, I think it would look like Jay Harwitz. Well, before we go... We talked about the Mets Hall of Fame on the first three episodes of NLT back in February, almost a year ago, when this was just a baby podcast. We nominated 22 individuals for the Mets Hall of Fame, and four of them were Al, Hojo, Howie, and Gary. Yes, we went four for four. Those three episodes were compiled into one this past December in a show called Big Hall Guys. Now, I'm not saying that NLT is definitely being played in Mets headquarters, but perhaps it is. And perhaps it's being played when Steve and Alex Cohn drive to City Field in their Toyota Corolla or whatever they drive. So maybe NLT played a small part in the naming of this year's honorees. We speak. And if anybody hears it, all the better. And that'll do it for this episode of National League Town. We'll be back with more next week. Until then. I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2023 music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute for music and tour dates. Check them out on Bandcamp.